All right. Turn and say hi to a couple people, and then you can have a seat. And before we get started with the study, um, Linda Hubb, who uh, comes first service and sits down near the front here, called today and she's going in for surgery tomorrow that's going to lead to getting a pacemaker put in in a week. So she's uh, asking for our prayers and also for her husband, just the stress of him going through it. And she's not sure how strong he is with the Lord. So let's just hold the Hubs up before the Lord. Lord... We thank you for the opportunity that we have when we hear of something that concerns us, that we can take it right to you. And as we agree together, we know you take action. And so we agree with Linda and we just lift her up. And I pray, God, that you would just bless the surgery tomorrow, guide the doctors, give them the best wisdom that they can possibly have in how to minister to her. Lord, give her your peace and her husband as well as she goes in for this and then as she gets a pacemaker put in um, next week, Lord, we just pray that your hand will be on her the entire time and she will feel your love and, and your support and comfort, strength as she undergoes this. So Lord, just thank you for what you're going to do for Linda and I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Also, uh, we have our Cinco de Mayo outreach coming up, and just wanted to mention that they're going to have a, another meeting for that on the 29th, the last Sunday of this month after third service. They're going to have a little luncheon, so hit Michael feed you if you'll help. So, <laughs> so keep that in mind. You'll, you'll see it in the bulletin as well, so... Now let's turn to, yes, Ann? Oh, yeah, in the bullet in the last couple weeks, it's had my son William's phone number for calling about the College and Career Fellowship. It's, it's been kind of a secret fellowship, but they didn't intend to put the wrong phone number in two weeks in a row, so <laughs> they don't want it to be that much of a secret, so... If you want the real phone number, you know someone who's in that age group, uh, the bulletin this next week will have the accurate phone number. So now let's turn to Romans chapter 3. First, you have something else? What? What? What is me? Oh, so this is, okay. This Friday is the college and career group too, so you can see the number this Sunday (laughs) that had you called it, you could have been there this Friday. (laughs) But again, if you're in that age group, um, you can stalk us on the way home and call, and uh, that's where it is. It's at our house, so you can find out where we live. No, you can call the church office, and they'll give you the information. (laughs) All right, Romans chapter 3. Paul has been going to great lengths to establish 
not only the fact of God's grace, and that's how salvation comes, but before you talk about salvation, you have to talk about the need for salvation. And so for most of these first two chapters, he's just talking about how whether Jew or Gentile, we are all unable to save ourselves. Every one of us is in sin. And the fact that in so many cases, the people who had the law, rather than learn that the lesson of that law was, I'm in trouble, they instead decided that they were better than others and it only got in the way of what God wanted to do. And so he's dealt with legalism, he's dealt with the, those who try to follow the Jewish law and fail, which is everyone who tried to follow it, deals with the people who knew nothing about the law and how yet there was a law in their hearts, they, even their own conscience, they knew that they weren't doing what they intended to do and so that everyone is basically condemned. And he's laying this foundation to, again, support his gospel, the message that he wanted to bring, that salvation is something that's free. And righteousness is something that God will give us if we, if we ask him. And it's a work that he does within our lives rather than something that we do in order to somehow earn some brownie points with God and, and a standing with God. He is completely removing the notion that what people for thousands of years had tried to do to be good people, that is religion, trying to follow rules and then therefore be good enough, he's trying to lay out clearly that that just doesn't work before then he begins to build an understanding and a support for what it means to live by faith, what it means to receive God's grace into our lives and to allow him to do the work that we can't possibly do. Now in chapter 3, he, for the most part, deals with some objections that people had. As soon as you talk about grace, as soon as you talk about the fact that we aren't able to be righteous on our own. The same kinds of concerns and questions typically pop up. People have objections to the truth of the gospel. So they always want to add things to it or substitute other elements to it. They often feel th things like, but wait a minute, if that's true, then why should I even be good? Or if that's true, then what was the whole point of the Old Testament? If that's true, then why does God give us so many commandments? And, you know, these sorts of objections that, that people have, because ultimately the truth just sounds too good to be true. It sounds too simple and just too, too much of a blessing for us to believe it. And so still, most Christians live their lives not accepting the reality of, of God's grace and goodness. Someone was mentioning to me um, Sunday, they were asking, you know, if this is true, then, you know, I know people who are just living in blatant sin, maybe living with somebody that they're not married to and things like that. And they say, well, you know, God's grace... And, and, the, and the, the, the bottom line of the question is, but wait a minute. What if people abuse this message? 
And that's the question that's behind every other question that people have with the gospel. And as I shared with her on Sunday, someone who just continues to live in sin, continues to to practice sin, um, the remedy for that is not to put them under the law. That's typically what we want to do. We think, okay, they're hearing too much about grace. They need for someone to lay down the hammer on them and just let them know they can't be where they are. But the truth is, the remedy for someone who continues living in a pattern of sin and then claiming the grace of God as a, as a defense for that, the truth is that person really hasn't understood the grace of God. They haven't yet comprehended the depth and the beauty of the gospel. And so what do they need? Not law. What they need is even more grace. They need to see even more how good God is. And that's a, it's taken a chance to do that. I realize that. And it doesn't always work, by the way, because people have choices. There isn't anything that we can do to force someone to be good and to live a beneficial life. God wants everyone to live a life that's moving away from sin. Why? Because Sin is something that destroys us, and God loves us. So, of course, he wants us to leave the pattern of behavior that we were in before we came to the Lord, because that pattern of behavior is what's destroying us. But to lay the law on someone will only cause them to be further defeated and drive them further away from the Lord. It is the goodness of God that brings us to repentance. And so, as strange as it sounds, when someone is living in a way that betrays their lack of understanding of the gospel, what they need is more of the gospel. What they need to understand more and more is God's grace. Because if you can live your life in a way that isn't changing at all, there's no sign of progress, it shows that you don't get it. Because when you get it, change happens. You don't make change happen. But again, this isn't something, you can't put the cart before the horse. The law will never allow people to have victory. But understanding grace will ultimately always result in small victories along the way and a huge victory in the process of sanctification. But you don't, try to help God out by laying the law down. People who are not living in victory are people who don't understand how good God is, how much he loves them, how much he has done for them. Now, Paul, here in chapter 3, starts out with a question that some of the Jews would ask. What advantage then has the Jew, or what is the prophet of circumcision. Another way of asking this would be, what was, isn't circumcision something that God invented? Now, in chapter 2, towards the end, we saw that it's what your heart is that really matters to God, not that which your flesh does. And so now he says, well, then what was the whole Old Testament about? What was the whole Old Covenant about? Why is there, is there no advantage to having that whole 
uh, sacrificial system and understanding all of the prophets and all that kind of thing. And he says, much in every way. There's a great profit to being Jewish and to having that background, to having that law background. Chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. See, the Old Testament law and following that law could never save anyone. But the groundwork was laid, and not only that, the clues were there to see the grace of God, to certainly see the fact that we've all sinned. There's nothing in the Word of God that would have ever made someone feel that they are justified by what they do. And he's going to go through and quote a bunch of Psalms later in this chapter to kind of lay that out. But he's saying, hey, it's great that you had the law. It's great that you understood that because that should have been the perfect preparation for you to come to appreciate and receive that gift of God's grace. The oracles of God, his word. Now he throws on as a follow-up question, for what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? That is, and the idea here is, as he was saying, it, it, it was all about your heart, not about what you did. So therefore, doesn't that make the system flawed? Because God invented that Old Testament law, and he made those rules for circumcision and everything else, the whole sacrificial system and everything. And so the fact that it didn't work, doesn't that show that God messed up? Doesn't that show that, you know, um, there's a failure on God's part? Because he invented this whole thing, you know. And Paul's response is certainly not. Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar. As it is written, and this is a quote from Psalm 51, that you may be justified in your words, that is God, and may overcome when you are judged. So he says, the problem is not with God. God is not to be blamed for man's failure. The problem was with man. The problem was with the choices that men gave. If people had responded the way they should have to the Old Testament law, then they could have come to an understanding of their need for grace. But instead, as is such a human thing, you give people rules, there are going to be a lot of people who use those rules to make themselves look better than others. And that's just a part of our flesh that we want to know that we aren't as bad as some people are. And so he says, hey, the problem is not with the law. You can't blame God for the fact that people mess up. And if God is telling the truth, let everyone be a liar. I don't care if everyone messes up. Truth is still truth. You don't, you know, so often we, um, with, with teachers in school, if they find a really tough question and most people miss it, the first thing they want to do is remove that question. Because if everyone's missing it, it must be a bad question. I had a teacher at Biola, though, Mr. Ebling, who's since gone to be with the Lord. And he had a, had a question on a test in, in my Hebrews class that was, well, everyone in every class missed the question. And the question was, 
did all of those who went out from Egypt perish in the wilderness? And everyone thought, well, no, they all didn't because you know, Joshua and Caleb both went out from Egypt and they didn't perish in the wilderness. They entered into the promised land. So everyone answered false. But the answer was true because there's actually a verse in Hebrews that says all of those who went out from Egypt perished in the wilderness. Now, which goes to show you sometimes all doesn't necessarily mean all, as people like to say. But Mr. Ebeling just argued vociferously on this point. And you know, I argued with him, and I said, wait a minute, there's two, it's not all. And he said, two out of two million means it's not all? The Bible says all. And I go, yeah, but there's two. It was, uh, you know, and he goes, what does the Bible say? This is a Bible class. And, you know, and I, I said, but everyone missed the question. It's a bad question. He said, every year, everyone always misses the question. It's my best question I've ever asked. <laughs> but that's the difference between God and us. If you start with man as the standard, you decide that, you know, let's take a vote. And it looks like this is a bad plan because it's not working. But God would say, look, I'm telling the truth, and I don't care if everyone disagrees with me. You can have every scientist in the world disagreeing with what God's word says about the fact that God created the world. But they're not right. Because let God be true and everybody else be a liar. Truth is truth. You can bank on that. So he goes on to say um, in verse 5 then, but if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? I speak as a man. Now what he's saying here is, Paul had been saying, the, and you know later you're going to see as he says, where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. The argument here is, wait a minute, if what man does causes God to be demonstrated as righteous, then can man really be judged or held accountable? If God's glorified when we mess up, how can we be judged for messing up when this is all a part of God's system to bring glory to himself? Can't we take credit for the fact that, well, you know, where sin abounds, grace much more abounds, so God ought to really appreciate me because I give him huge opportunities to demonstrate his grace. His grace is manifested more in me than in most people. God should be glad he has someone like me to mess up this much. What really tips God's apple cart over is these really good people because no one understands God's righteousness from that. And so Paul says, certainly not. For then how will God judge the world? In other words, and that's kind of a simple response to it, but basically what he's saying is scriptures clearly teach that God is going to judge the world. And so what you're suggesting, that somehow everyone should be okay because God's grace overrides everyone, no, judgment is coming. That's definitely true. That's a reality. Jesus told Nicodemus, whoever doesn't believe in me is already condemned. So 
you can't throw out what the scripture says in order to latch on to something else that it says. You have to figure out how the two go together. And so he says, of course, no way is it true that therefore everyone is saved and there's just no judgment because it's just a blanket program. Universalism is a wonderful idea that somehow everyone gets saved, but throughout the scriptures it makes it really clear that that's not the case. There are some people who are condemned. In fact, everyone is condemned until they come into a faith in Jesus Christ. So Paul's making it clear this isn't just some squishy kind of blanket program that saves everyone. The truth is God's wrath is still a reality and his judgment is still going to come. And so if you interpret God's grace to to mean that somehow that's not going to happen, then you're interpreting it incorrectly. Um, so then he says, and, and why not say, let us do evil that good may come? This is kind of the bottom line of all these questions is. And there are still people today who would say, well, if what you're saying is true, then I should be as bad as I can possibly be because I've got God's grace. This is, again, this is like the person who just says, I'm not going to, you know, be any different than I am. I don't, I'm fine then. Okay, God's grace, I'm saved by grace. Great, I'm going to heaven. And so I think I'll just live any way I want to. Of course, and Paul's going to go into greater detail about this objection later. The bottom line of it, as I was saying, is if you do that, you betray that you really don't understand his grace. You don't see what this is all about. You don't see what he actually wants to do in your life. To really see God's grace is an overwhelming and powerful experience that's transformative just by its very nature. And it begins a process of you being liberated from sin, of you not destroying yourself in the same ways that you used to. That's how you know it's working. All of a sudden, without a big effort on your part, you're, you feel that work of the Spirit in your life, and, and you're not wanting to do the stupid things that you used to do. You're not wanting to destroy yourself. Now you go, but I've accepted him, and I believe in his grace, and I'm just still sinning as much as I ever did. Well, take a harder look at his grace. Chances are you're not seeing it for what it is because grace works. It has an effect on our lives. It's the law that causes us to be defeated. It's God's grace that allows us to live victorious lives, and that's what the whole book is about. But here he's a little impatient. He said, as we are slanderously reported, as some affirm that we say, he said, there are people who are saying this about me. His answer to that was, their condemnation is just. That's his whole defense. His whole thought on that was, they deserve to be condemned. If someone wants to think that way, I'm not even going to argue with them, Paul would say. Now he, in verse 9, begins to sum up the whole message of this section and really the heart of this third chapter because he's going to be shifting gears somewhat, although chapter 4 is an illustration of Abraham that kind of goes back to explain how 
faith worked even in the Old Testament, and, and so we'll get into that later. But here, he, he wants to, again, after dealing with these objections, he wants to stress, look, the point is you are all in trouble. You are all sinners. The hurdle, the burden that keeps us from God working in our lives is the failure to be aware of the fact that we are all hopelessly dead in sin that none of us is capable of being good enough to earn anything with God. And the reason why he harps on this so much is that this is the problem that keeps us from God's grace. It's the feeling that either I feel personally defeated because I think that I'm a worse sinner than other people, and therefore I get discouraged and give up, because I look at other people and I see they're so much better than I am. I'm a lousy Christian and some of these people are really good Christians. I quit. Or the feeling as you look around and scan the audience and go, I think I'm better than most of these people. Either one is a complete lie. Either one is a total trap. And the devil will use whichever he needs to use to rob you of the grace of God. And, and sometimes in a given day, we will fluctuate back and forth between being absolutely condemned and defeated, which isn't from God. There is therefore now, we'll see later, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So we feel defeated and condemned, and then next thing we know, we get to feeling better and now we're judgmental and condemning of others. See someone worse than me, and so I go, boy, I'm glad there are people like that in the world. Makes me feel good about the way I am. Either one cripples you, robs you of the grace of God. And I think most of us will probably be either led to one or the other, although we will all experience bits of both. And so... Paul continues to stress, all have sinned. And there are two emphases of that. All have sinned, therefore you have sinned, don't you ever forget it. And all have sinned, that is you have a lot of company. There are a whole lot of people who are in the same boat with you. And to understand both of those is the, is the biggest hurdle to being set free from the power of sin in your life. Because it what, it's what allows you to come together with all of God's people and come boldly before the throne of grace, to receive that grace that comes from God. On Sunday in, in Ephesians, we'll see Paul's prayer for the, for the Christians, and it's so focused on the idea that we can together discover God's grace in a way that you can't individually. He says that you'd be able to comprehend with all the saints the breadth and length and height and depth of the love of God. And so we have to discover it individually, and then we need to recognize it's a corporate. Sin is a corporate problem. Therefore, you shouldn't be surprised when your friends and family sin. You shouldn't be surprised when people are doing things that are wrong. It shouldn't freak you out. It, you shouldn't feel like, oh, no. The world, it's getting worse and worse. Hey, everyone sins. That's the problem. Accept it and understand it. But just remember that everyone includes you. 
and me. We are all under the domination of sin until the Lord begins to rescue us from that. And so he says, what then? Are we better than they? Is there this we and they thing? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. We are all sinners. And then he goes through and just pulls references from the Old Testament, primarily from the Psalms, some from Isaiah, to, to make this point, to go, this is not something new that all have sinned. This is something that you should have learned from the law. This is something that you should learn from observing human behavior. This is certainly something that you should have learned from studying the Word of God. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. That means you. There is none who seeks after God. You didn't either. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. Are you getting that? Their throat is an open tomb. Talk about bad breath. With their tongues, they have practiced deceit. You're all phonies. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. In other words, man is basically good. <laughs> no, not at all. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. He said the point of the law was to shut you up. Instead, you just talk and talk and talk about it. It was there for you to recognize you need to plead guilty. And when we stop pleading guilty, we stop receiving grace. It's as simple as that. That's why, and, and we twist the scriptures so much. You know, in 1 John, as, as John says, I'm writing this to you so that you can be close to God, connected with him. And he says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Confess our sins. Now, again, that doesn't mean go into a little phone booth and kneel down and tell the priest what you did. It doesn't even mean remember every sin that you committed today and make sure that you tell God how sorry you are and really weep over it. The word confession just means literally to agree, to say the same thing. And ultimately what confession is is a life commitment to always recognize the truth of what Paul's saying here. Today, God, I did what everyone does. I sin. And when I talked to that person that way, when I neglected to do this, when I thought about or planned on doing this or those bad thoughts I had in that area, God, they're sin. I agree with you completely that they're sin. Now, I'm sorry about it, but I can't do anything about it. But all I can do, God, is just tell you I agree with you. That's a pity. 
that's wrong, that's stupid, that's destructive, it's doing damage, I agree with you. And when we do that, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Us acknowledging our sin is what opens the door to God working in our life by his grace and mercy, by his spirit, to change our lives, to get the poison out of our lives. And that's why, again, as John emphasizes it in 1 John, and he says, hey, if you say you don't have sin, you're a liar. The truth isn't in you. You are deceived. You've been conned. But Paul here, again, harping on this, making the point, no, don't deny your sin. Don't flower it up. Don't justify yourself. If you don't justify yourself, he won't justify you. So don't pretend like you're better than you are. Don't pretend like you're something that you aren't. Stop playing those games and admit your sin. If you don't admit your sin, there isn't anything in the scriptures that talks about you being forgiven. It's having that mindset of going, I am guilty every step of the way. Now, again, sometimes this is harped on in a way that just causes you to feel defeated. And so people will tell you, you know, you're, you're all thieves. Because if you were at work today and you stayed in the restroom a little longer than you needed to because you got to reading something, or you were working on your computer and then you checked over on something on eBay or you read a funny email that somebody sent or you passed it on to other people or you were stealing from your boss. You know, yeah, I suppose. But is that where it ends? Do you just feel bad? Or do you go, you know what? That's pretty much the way I live my life. So that's the patterns that I've developed. And what it does is remind me that I'm just like everybody else. And God, I agree with you. And I thank you for your forgiveness. And I thank you for your grace. And I thank you that me going to heaven and even me having a relationship with you isn't about whether or not I check Drudge Report. It's all about what Jesus Christ did on the cross. And the more we remind ourselves of his grace, the greater opportunities the Spirit has to help us to do some of those things less. But as long as we're just defending ourselves and justifying what we do, then we're going to continue to get worse and feel bad about it. That's the thing. If you're feeling awful about the kind of person that you are, you don't understand God's grace. If you're feeling like you're great, you're better than most, you're not understanding God's grace. Either one is a recipe for failure in life. And so he just doesn't want us to miss this point. And so he says, it's there to shut you up. All the world is guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the flesh, verse 20, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. All the law does is let you know that you're a sinner. 
You can't justify yourself. You can't discipline yourself enough to make God pleased with you and put you in a different category with all those awful people. Nope. Now he goes on to kind of lay this out again. (laughs) And he says, but now, and that's a great phrase, because here's the deal. The righteousness of God, apart from the law, and the law there in most of your versions probably isn't capitalized, whereas the second time it's used in the verse, it is capitalized. Because probably the first, and I think that's probably a good decision. In the first case, he's talking about the law with a small l, moral law, right and wrong, ability to do what you're supposed to do or not, and then specifically the Old Testament law and prophets there in the second half of the verse. But the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. So they confirm it, but real righteousness doesn't come from following rules, is what he's saying. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference. The difference is in people who believe and people who don't. The difference is not in good people and bad people. There are no good people. He's already established that. But he says the righteousness of God, that's something that's amazing. And that's what the gospel says is given to you independently of what you do. It's only that you believe. And the more aware you are of your sin, the more likely you are to see this as a real option. You just have to turn away from the lies of the world, the lies of your flesh, the lies of the devil that tell you either that you can do it yourself or that tell you that you can never do it. And recognize the good news, the righteousness of God. Other than that, there's no difference. For, reminding us as if we didn't get the point already, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23, one of the verses that people memorize when they start memorizing verses. It's a part of, well, the four spiritual laws uses it, the Roman road for witnessing uses it, to lay down this first step. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. None of us can get to God because of our sin. But the sentence doesn't end there, and I think it's too bad that we often quote verse 23 without remembering verse 24. Being justified freely. Freely. It's free to us. It's not cheap grace. It wasn't free to God. It cost him the life of his son. It cost Jesus emptying himself and and being killed and separated from the Father. But from our perspective, it's free. Anytime there's something that's free, it costs somebody. You know, the you go to Costco, woohoo, they have free lunch. They have all those little samples of different things and somebody paid for those and they're paying to try to get you to buy those things. Doesn't work on me, but you know, whatever. I don't think I've ever bought any of the stuff, but 
being justified freely to us by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. This is the gospel. This is the heart of the gospel. All sinned and fell short of the glory of God, but we are justified for free by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation. The word propitiation, in a simplified form, you could say it means payment. Literally, the word propitiation means pain so that someone can have mercy. It's purchasing someone's mercy. It's the word that's actually used for the mercy seat, that which sat above the Ark of the Covenant, over which the glory of God dwelt. It speaks of the covering of his mercy, but the propitiation is the purchasing of the ability for God to show mercy on us. And it was by his blood, and it's applied through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. Now, so again, everyone sinned. The blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, if we put our faith in him, pays the price for us to receive mercy and forgiveness. We are saved by his grace. It was a free gift that he gave us. And the only righteousness that we will ever have is the righteousness that he gives us in conjunction with that redemption, with that buying back of who we are. All of these key words, and in just these few verses, is the, all of the understanding of what the good news really is. And a part of the thing that we sometimes don't understand is why did that have to happen? Why could not God have just wiped the slate clean without our sins being paid for? How come God didn't just forgive us without all of that? Well, there was a price that needed to be paid in order for God's holiness to be upheld. Because God cannot tolerate sin in fellowship with him. And so the fact that we just can't figure out why God couldn't just let everybody to heaven or just forgive everyone without Jesus having to die demonstrates that we really don't understand how good and holy he is, that he cannot be polluted or infected by anything that's destructive, by anything that is ultimately sinful, And that's who we are, and that's how we live. And so it was necessary for Jesus to die because somebody had to pay the price for our sin. Someone had to pay the price of propitiation. Someone had to pay the price of redemption to purchase back that which had been lost because of sin. And so, as he says... God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. That is, God had been stalling off the judgment that was ultimately going to have to be paid. And through, through the Old Testament, through the sacrificial system, there was a faith 
in an ultimate provision by God, as a lamb would be sacrificed, that would allow the covering over of that sin, but it wouldn't allow that sin to ultimately be forgiven. That didn't happen. It couldn't happen. But what that system did was allow God's patience to and his long-suffering to prevail for a period of time, but ultimately someone had to pay the piper. Those sins were piling up. The offense against God was very real, and even those people who had put their faith in him could not come into the presence of God, could not come into heaven, and so they were in that place of paradise, that holding tank that Jesus called Abraham's bosom, they were in this place waiting for somebody to buy their ticket out of there and into the presence of God. And so God was waiting. Even as there's a sense in which he's still waiting today, that's why, you know, when Peter says, he isn't slack concerning his promises, some people count slackness, but he's patient toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. If God wasn't patient, he would have killed you a long time ago, me too, and everyone else. If God was as patient as we are, he'd just flip on the news, and you'd see people dropping right and left for things that they do. But he's patient. But ultimately, he knows if there is ever going to be real redemption, real resolution, a real unity among God's creation and among his people, then a horrible price would have to be paid. And so, as Paul said, he passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So this process of redemption was what enabled God to still be God, to still be just. If he had forgiven sins in any other way other than that price being paid, then God wouldn't be just. It wouldn't be right. So he is, on the one hand, he is just. So he is declared righteous. God was justified when... And it says that Jesus was justified, by the way. But God is declared to be righteous himself by paying the price himself. And so he is just and the justifier. He does the justifying and he himself is justified because he wouldn't be just had that price not been paid. And so he went ahead and paid the price himself and Y'all have heard the illustration of a judge who has a person before them who is guilty. And he can't uphold the law and not find them guilty. But then, in their different versions of the story, in some it's the judge's son who's being found guilty. But the judge then takes off his robe and offers to, to take the punishment and to pay the penalty for that sin. And that's essentially what God did. In order to be just, he had to say guilty because we've all sinned. But then, by sending his son to die for us, he became the justifier 
and the just. He paid the price and, in a sense, received the price as well because the offense was against him, but not so much against him as against his justice, against what's right. Now, the cool thing is, as we were mentioning 1 John 1, 9 earlier, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So God is not just forgiving us out of the kindness of his heart or out of the softness of his heart. God always does what's right. And because Jesus Christ paid the price and justified us, as a result, now, if we do what he said you have to do to appropriate that, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. I'm so glad that it's not only God's love that causes my sins to be forgiven. I'm so glad that it's not just his sympathy or his, um, you know, uh, kind of a soft place in his heart that causes him to forgive my sins, and then the justice of God is looming somewhere wanting to get out. Like the in the movies and TV shows where you see somebody's battling with a decision and there's a little angel version of them on one shoulder telling them to do what's right, and there's a little demon version of them on the other shoulder telling them to do what's wrong. That's not God. God is only just. And because of it, he can't help but forgive my sins if I confess those sins. Because he's laid that out. The price has already been paid. God can't not forgive us. His justice dictates forgiveness as much as his justice dictated judgment if we didn't put our faith in him. Because the price was paid and that's taken care of. And that's amazing. And I am so thankful to know that. But he is the justifier and he's the one who is just and it's proven. So he winds it up. Verse 27, so where is boasting then? What are you bragging about? It's excluded. By what law? Of works? No. By the law of faith. The law of faith removes bragging. If God had set up a system whereby we needed to cooperate with him, that as there are some who have said, oh, I know we're saved by grace, but I think we're kept by works. There are a lot of, there are a lot of Christians who would say that. We're saved by grace, but we're kept by works. In other words, I got in the door of salvation by grace, but in order for me to stay there, I need to do certain things. If that was the case, you could brag about being there. And so works have no place in our security, in our justification at all. Now, works have a place in our lives, of course. And, you know, that's, you know, that's very clear, and he, he's certainly going to talk about that later in the book as well. The fact is, when this is working, <laughs> when we're really recognizing the power of his grace then naturally changes occur in our lives. 
But those changes are nothing that we can brag about. I cannot hold my head higher than anyone else on the basis of what I do. I cannot brag because it, because it is all of grace. I am saved by grace. I am kept by grace. There isn't anything I can do to merit that, to make that worthwhile at all. All I can do is trust him. Boasting is excluded by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude... He's not concluding the book, (laughs) kind of concluding the chapter, but really 4 just picks up where he leaves off. Therefore, we conclude, here's my argument, that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Or, is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. He goes, so look, here's the bottom line. Anyone who is justified is justified by faith apart from the law, whether they are a Jew or whether they are a Gentile. The only way you can stand before God, the only way you can be justified is not by faith in Jesus and membership in a church. It's not by faith in Jesus and getting baptized. It's not by faith in Jesus and loving your neighbor as yourself. It's simply by faith in him alone. Faith alone. By grace alone. That's the formula. That's the truth. That is what can take the pressure off of us. It's glorious. Anything else would be bad news because if God said, I'm going to save you, Now you better clean up your life. And I expect you to have progressed this much by this date. I would fail. Because it's kind of funny. I mean, I do grow, but sometimes I grow in spurts. Sometimes I'll spend time when I feel like, man, I've been losing ground lately. Those are the times, by the way, when I start thinking that it's about what I do. And I'm focusing on that. I'm taking... My, my progress up to this point for granted. I'm looking back and going, I've come a long way. And all of a sudden, I'm sliding back and going, I haven't gone anywhere at all. Let's start over. It's kind of how God is with us. When we, if any man thinks he stands, take heed, lest you fall. You will fall. You know, and, and again, so often, the... You know, the great falls happen after a great puffed-up feeling of success. God wants us to walk by faith, and he wants us to depend solely on him. And if he has to knock us on our tail and cause us to fail horribly in order to remind us of his grace, then that's what he will do. And it's as predictable as clockwork. It'll happen, and it'll happen when you least expect it because it happens when you think you're doing really good. And so every day we need this reminder. It's just faith in him. I am like everybody else in this world. I have something in common with them. I don't feel like, where did all these people come from, and why am I here? 
kind of like when you're in line at the DMV and you're looking around and going, am I in, you know, some, uh, some third world country or something? This is like strange. Or, you know, the same thing happens when you're in a jury room waiting. You're looking around and going, somebody's fate is in the hands of all these people. And then you're going, oh, I hope I don't get on a jury. Wait a minute, I think you think you're the only one that's really qualified to be on a jury. Yeah, but I also have a life. These people obviously don't. And so every once in a while, God gives us jury duty and DMV responsibilities, unless you go to AAA, and that way you can circumvent all of that. But he does that deliberately to remind us of who we are. It's it's one of the beautiful things about um, a missions trip, by the way, that you get off somewhere else, and you, you think you're going over to do some big favor. I mean, we have this great opportunity to go to Hong Kong for a couple of weeks and, and just ministers, like people that want to speak English to you, and you get to tell them about the Lord and, and your life and everything else, and, and such an amazing opportunity well, one of the best things about it is when you go over there and you think you're doing somebody a favor and you find out these people are just like us. These people are, are, are in the same boat that I am in. And you have a love for them and a compassion. You want to help them. They feel like family. I mean, I have some of the closest people to me in my life are people who I've never spoken the same language that they do, but I, but I see what God's doing in their lives, and I'm like so bound to them. We got a, Steve emailed out a, a little newsletter from Chom No in Cambodia, and seeing what God is doing, it's amazing. Uh, Chom No's organization, a Christian organization, has been so successful in starting these little schools everywhere, and you guys have contributed to help pay for some of those and to build some of those, and we've been over to some of them. They're so successful that the government is asking Cho, Chomno's organization, to come in and teach the teachers how to do school. And, and I'm like, I'm so excited. I'm so thrilled, and that's that's my brother. I am as excited about that as I, as I would be if they came here in Orange County and this Department of Education said, we want you to come in and Christianize the schools. I wouldn't be any more excited than I am for them over there because I've been there and I see those people. And when you have an opportunity to do that, you'll see what I'm talking about. It causes you to feel connected with those who are so different than you are, it gives you a perspective. We get such a warped perspective living where we are because we're in our little bubble like the Truman Show, going through the motions of our life and so out of touch with reality. What God's Word does is call us back to reality and go, you guys are all sinners and it's okay. Because you can all be forgiven if you put your faith in Jesus. It's free. And you have the opportunity not only to receive it, but to give it away to others, to hand off to them this, this great message. The Jews, Gentiles, anyone. Since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Faith is the doorway 
Do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. He goes, this isn't doing away with rules. Not at all. This is something that really establishes the law. This is something that allows us to see what the Old Testament was all about. And then, instead of just failing, this is the key to our succeeding and becoming people who God can use. People who can have victory over the self-destructive tendencies that we inherited from our father Adam. It proves the law in the sense that, yep, (laughs) I'm convicted too. Whether I'm a Jew or not, I'm guilty. But it also lays a foundation that will, as Paul goes on to teach, open the door for us to actually have some victory. And through the law of grace, through that receiving of the work of the Spirit in our lives, real change happens. And that's what we always tried to do when we were following the rules. We just couldn't do it. But if you will let go of the rules, you'll find that following the rules becomes natural, becomes just automatic. That in reality, when you remove the burden of sin, and that's off the table, that's forgiven, that's a done deal, and then you just go, I can do whatever I want? Yep. You find out what you really want. And so often, what you really want is to do what you always tried to do, but you couldn't do it on your own. It just happens. That's how grace works. That's the only thing that will work in life. And so as we continue in this book, and next week we'll look at the example of Abraham and realize, you know, this has always been the case. It's not just that all of us are, you know, need grace, but Abraham understood that. He needed it as well. Everyone in history has needed this message, and now here we are, we have the message. How privileged we are. Let's pray. Lord, thanks again for this amazing message. We're so stupid, sometimes this gets old to us. And we're able to just go, yeah, 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 saved by grace, through faith, it's free, all grace, blah, blah, blah. Oh, man. We need this so desperately. We are so blessed. On a moment-by-moment basis, God, every breath we take is a breath of your mercy because we would be consumed if you did what we deserve. Deliver us from denial. Deliver us also from self-condemnation or being condemned by others. Set us free by your grace and by your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Well, God bless you. I'll see you on Sunday. I don't know.